Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a study called The Journey, which means we are studying through the Bible and reading through the Bible together as a congregation. So if you don't have a journey book, it's a red book. Just walk back here to the table. There's stacks of them. Take it. Uh, it's just a Bible reading plan. Uh, every six pages or so, you'll see that there's also or seven, I should say. There's a place for you to write sermon notes um, for today. So uh, the way we're doing this is you'll have four different readings per month. And one of those readings, we're going to dive in and study together as a church. So in the very beginning in January, we did um, the Psalms today. Uh, and actually for the month of February, even though today's March 1st, um, today, since we read last in, in February, we've been doing Exodus Leviticus. Uh, and so I did three weeks of Exodus and just one sermon in Leviticus. I did get some flack from Jack. Uh, I didn't mean to rhyme that, but I did get some, some like, I can't believe you just did one sermon in Leviticus. Man, what's wrong with you? Like, I was, he was giving it to me. So, um, but <clears throat> it's Leviticus, right? It's Leviticus. Have y'all been reading it? Um, it's a difficult book, I thought, um, but um, not too difficult that we can't understand it, not too difficult that we can't, we can't preach from it. So um, here's the deal of what's going on today. Um, we are in the book of Leviticus, and um, today's sermon and Lord's Supper, um, sometimes you kind of think of them as there's sermon and then there's Lord's Supper. I want you to just, well, especially today, but really always, it's all just the sermon today. The Lord's Supper is the sermon with today's text. So um, that's the way it should be every time, but today especially. So um, I want to say one other thing, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Um, Today, um, March the 1st, uh, and it's important as a pastor to make sure that when huge evidences of God's grace have happened to us as a church, that I do the best I can to remind you of these things so that we're constantly in awe of this amazing God we have. Today, March the 1st, um, actually March the 4th is this coming week, will be the birthday of little Avonlea Powell. Um, And so, I don't know if y'all remember, uh, but about a year ago, she was born. And before she was born, Brian and Melissa knew that she had trisomy 13. Um, And usually, whenever trisomy 13 babies are born, they have pretty severe birth defects and they don't live very long. Um, I can remember sitting in the waiting room with Gary and Cheryl and Joe and Donna um, as the baby's being born, and we're just praying. We're having no idea what's going to happen. We're just waiting. Like, what's going to happen? Is, is, is God going to be awesome? Um, he's always going to be awesome, but is he going to astound us today? Uh, and so she was born that day, and very unique for most, didn't have any birth defects, and um, is now going to be a year old in three days. That's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty rare. Really, really rare. And so God... Um, has done an amazing work in our midst here at Remedy. And we want to make sure that you know just the amazing things that God is doing. And even more like God, um, March the 4th is also the same birthday as her cousin, who was born a couple years earlier. And she was born at 20 weeks, 15 ounces. And so God, in this amazing grace that he's given to the Powells, is having two little cousins that are just stories of his grace um, and little little birthday party I can't wait to go today. Um, all my girls are going to wear princess dresses because it's a princess party. And so um, <clears throat> I'm not going to wear one. But, <laughs> but it's a princess party today. It's a big celebration. And we should all be like in awe of this good God who has given us Avonlea. And she's a year old and huge and awesome and fun. And um, I think Brian would probably say it's because of his genes that she's doing so well, um, knowing Brian. But anyway... That's way beside the point. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into, if you have a Bible, 
the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Um, only time I've ever preached from Leviticus right here today. Um, I'm sure I'll do it again one time in my life, but we are in the book of Leviticus, um, hopefully more than one time, but we are in the book of Leviticus right now. So chapter 16, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Lord, thank you so much for this amazing work you've done in the Powell family. Um, little Avonlea, healthy and strong and just a joy to their family. What a joy she is. And a daily reminder of the amazing grace that you give um, and how strong and how in awe of we should be of how you continually just amaze us with your goodness. Um, thank you for that gift to Remedy as we can see that and celebrate that and be just excited of what you're doing. Lord, I pray for today as we look at your word. Um, the book of Leviticus can be tough to understand, and I don't want it to be. Um, it can be uh, maybe scary to try to understand, and I don't want it to be. And so I pray, Lord, that one thing is that you would help me um, as I preach, that it would be what I say is understandable, and that it would be received in a way by everybody here that it's understandable, and no one would be scared of Leviticus. Um, but more than that, God, I just don't want it to be understood. Instead, Lord, I want our affections to be moved for our Savior Christ as we see Jesus in Leviticus and that you would do that good work for us today. I love you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1998, the spring of 1998, I was a lifeguard at the Charleston Southern Pool which if you've been there, it's nothing necessarily impressive. It's not very big. I could almost jump across the whole thing. Um, but I was there, uh, and my wife, Christy, was also uh, a lifeguard. I was the head lifeguard at the time. And um, I know it's not like, don't be like, Baywatch. No, nothing like that. Um, it wasn't anything impressive whatsoever. Um, but I just was the most responsible senior that knew how to make schedules for people. And so I was the head lifeguard. That's all it was. Well, anyway, um, Back to the actual point. So there was a family that would always come down. I think that dad was a student and he had a lot of kids. And I always remember thinking, man, that's a lot of kids. What are they thinking? Um, hindsight now is irony. It's hilarious. So uh, anyway, he would come down. And as I've learned myself today, that when you come to any kind of pool, you've got to have bags and bags of stuff. And you got, you know, just you're trying to carry it all in one trip because you want to go back to the car. And everybody has a job. And so you, they get there. And I remember watching the family come down. They had, I think, five. Um, and I remember watching. There was this one, looked like he was three-year-old or so. When the parents get to the table and you're putting every stuff down, you, you, you're in zone defense anyway. You're not man-to-man. And, and some can squeak through the zone. And so one, one did. And Christy and I were watching. And I remember watching this little guy run away from them and jump into the pool. Now, um, because I was watching it from the very beginning, it wasn't like an amazing save by foot. It wasn't a big deal. I just jumped into the pool. He was obviously underwater. I jumped in beside him, picked him up, handed him to Christy. Christy took him back over to the family. You know, they took their eyes off, and so they feel awful, and they're so thankful. But it really wasn't that much of an amazing save. I just saw him jump in and jumped in beside him, picked him up. Um, so he jumped into the deep end and was kind of head over. I say all that to say, not because of this great save, but here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to take all of us and I'm just going to throw us right into the deep end today. We're, we're not going to hop into the shallow end and kind of meander down to the deep end. Instead, um, we're going to, jumping in Leviticus 16, I'm going to take you all and just throw you in the deep end, and hopefully you can swim. Um, and what's going to happen is, uh, my, my goal is, is this. You're going to see what was necessary on the Day of Atonement for the priests to make sacrifices by animals for the people. And what I want you to see here is, 
all of us should just be overwhelmed by the amount of work that's necessary. Overwhelmed by the amount of work that's necessary for one man to do. And then it only secures atonement for a year. That's, that's my goal. Throw you in the deep end. Help you all see the overwhelming amount of work necessary by Aaron the priest here. So um, we are in the book of Leviticus. John Salehammer says... Um, in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books, Penta meaning five, the Pentateuch, the, the book of Leviticus should be thought of really as just Exodus part two. Much how Luke and Acts are really, because they're written by Luke's just Luke, and then you know, Luke part two is what Acts, are, Acts is. Um, Leviticus should just be thought of as kind of Exodus part two. They're very similar. The narrative is, is all kind of the same. Um, there's really, as we look at the entire book of Levit- Leviticus, if you're not necessarily familiar, there's three main theological messages that are being shown to us in the book of Leviticus. If you've been reading it this week, you'll just seen it's very thorough in its law giving. There are lots and lots of thorough, thorough, thorough laws for the people. But the things that are kind of, the themes that come out of it is, number one, because of all the laws, the holiness of God. That God is holy, extremely holy, that he requires all these things. The second is the sacrificial system of killing all these animals to make atonement on a yearly basis. And the third thing is that the priesthood, Aaron is the priest in this particular text we're going to look at, and that there's a, there's a, there's a message being shown to us that the priesthood is absolutely necessary. So um, the, the most, most of the book of Leviticus is, is, is laws. There's not a whole lot of narrative or story. There's a little bit in 8 through 10, um, and then we're going to see in 16 here that it's, it's kind of narrative, but even more descriptive, but we're going to um, look at, at chapter 16. So that's what's going on. Now, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to put, there's four things, and I'm going to put them all up at one time right now. So let's go ahead and put them up right now, and I want you to go ahead and write them all down right now. So the four ceremonial aspects of the Day of the Atonement. We're going to look at the Day of the Atonement, what Aaron has to do. There are four aspects to it. There's four things kind of going on uh, that are happening. And I want you to go ahead and write all four down. The reason why I want you to write all four down right now instead of writing during is because once you write them down, I want you to put your pen down and just listen. I want you to absorb all that's going to be said. I don't want you to be distracted as we're going through writing down the next thing. And I want, as I said, as I'm throwing you deep in the overwhelming amount of work necessary, I want you to just listen to it and kind of think about it. At the very end, I'll come back to these four things. But there's the person, that's Aaron the priest. There's a sacrifice, that's the animals. The effects of the day, which is that the people are now going to receive forgiveness of sin for a year. And then the response of the people, uh, which is instituted each year afterwards. That response, if you look at verse 29, where it says, and it shall be a statute or a law now uh, to you forever. Then the seventh month on the 10th day, you shall afflict yourself. So from now on, after this day, every seventh month on the 10th day, that's the day of the atonement starting every year from now on. And so the the response is every year you're going to have to do this. And there's even like requirements for the people and requirements for the priests every year now. That's the response. That's all coming. But I just wanted you to go ahead and write all four of those things down. And now let's just go through 16. We're about to jump into some, I mean, this is, this is not common everyday reading. It's not, you know, you're not reading a narrative story where you're just kind of flying through stuff. There's going to be some, some stuff. I'm going to explain it as we go. Uh, but I want you to jump in with me into 
to the deep waters of the Day of the Atonement in Leviticus 16 and understanding the sacrificial system and what that priest does as he offers these sacrifices. Verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Okay, stop. <laughs> Who are these guys? Well, if you flip over to chapter 10, uh, you're going you're gonna to see the, the two sons. Um, in chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abuhu, it's a pregnant women. There's two son names right there. They're not really good guys, so you maybe don't want to use it. Now, Nadab and Abuhu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, here it is, unauthorized or, or strange uh, fire. So they offered fire or incense unto the Lord, not, not authorized. God didn't tell them to do this. Do this. And they offered it before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What happened? Right when it happened, fire came out before them and the Lord consumed them and they died before the Lord. So when they offered this, though they were trying to do something seemingly correct, um, some people even argued that they were drunk when they did this because of verse 9. It says, drink no wine or strong drink when your son's with you or when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. So they make an in, a, a, a guess that maybe they were even drunk when they did it. Um, but in verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and all the people will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So obviously his sons died. He's very upset, but he realizes they, they un- offered unauthorized fire. And because they did this, um, the Lord consumed them in fire. Now we're back over at 16. So we've got the reason why 10 is there and what, the reason why it's mentioned here in verse 1 is because the writer, Moses, is wanting you to see Aaron can't just come and offer the sacrifices because of the sins of his family have happened. He has to do things now and even, even just to come order, uh, offer sacrifices because of his two sons. So the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. So you've got the tent and you've got kind of the first place and then you go into the next and that's where the Holy of Holies, the priest is only allowed to go into this particular place once a year um, and he tells him not to come in here. If you do, without going through these necessary things that I'm gonna lay out in front of you, you're gonna die. Your, your sons have caused this with their sin. And he says, verse three, but in this way, this is how Aaron's supposed to come into the holy place. Don't just walk right in. This is what you have to happen. This is what has to happen. And here we're going to see kind of the, uh, the consecration necessary for the high priest, which is Aaron, to be able to do this. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. So um, he has to make a sacrifice for himself, a bull and a ram. And as he does that, Offering those things will cleanse him and his entire family. And once he's done that, then he'll be able to make the sacrifices necessary for Israel, which we're going to see in a second. So first he has to offer a bull and a ram, as, as one for sin offering and one for the burnt offering. And before he can even walk in, he has to do these things. Verse 4, he shall put on a holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban all these are, are, these are the holy garments. So he has to put on these priestly linen garments. And he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. So the bathing here is, is um, he's releasing or letting go of the common. And the bath then ushers him into the sacred. 
And so it's necessary for him to take this bath, bathe in water, and then he shall put all these things on and he shall take from the congregation. So that's the bull and the ram are necessary for him. And then he's also going to take from the people of Israel, the congregation, some things. And it says, he shall take for the people two male goats for a sin offering and one for a ram offering. So for his own sin offering, a bull, and then for his burnt offering as a ram. And for the people of Israel, for their sin offering is two goats. And for their burnt offering is also a ram. So here we're seeing um, that first aspect, which is the person, which is Aaron, and that he is to bathe. This is, like as I said, the transition from the common to the sacred, that he has to put on the priestly clothes. Um, and these priestly clothes are demonstrating that he is the priest now. He is able to do all these things, but first the bull has to be sacrificed. So the person is Aaron. Now, one thing about Aaron um, being the priest, only the priest can do this. He can have no help. He is to carry out all the sacrifices by himself. All the labor is to be done by the priest and the priest alone. That has crazy messianic implications. You, we'll get to that soon. I, don't wanna, I shouldn't have said that. So here we go. Uh, verse, verse 6. Um, verse 6 through 10, this is the inventory of animals. This is the inventory of animals, the number of animals that are required for the sacrifice. Um, one commentator, which was interesting, said that there's... Um, the, as we're looking at the requirements of the, of the animals, it's not necessarily about the animals them, per, themselves per se. The focus of the text is instead on the attitude of the participants, which is the, the priests and their repentance and obedience to God. So while there are animals and while it's bloody and nasty, the, the focus isn't necessarily on the animal as much as it is on the priest and their repentance and their attitudes of repentance and obedience. So here we have the inventory. We just we talked about a little bit of the inventory, and he's going to tell us exactly what to do in verses 6 through 10. So as I said, the first ceremonial aspect is the priest. The second ceremonial aspect is the sacrifices necessary. And here we are at verses 6 through 10, the inventory of sacrifices. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He has to do that first before he can even offer atonement for the people. And then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. The casting lots, by the way, um, makes it seem like it's just random. It's not random. The Lord is sovereignly choosing in every time and from on which goat he wants to be the one that's going to be killed, which goat he wants to be the one to be the scapegoat. Um, Keep going. I'll explain scapegoat. Um, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, that's the one that's going to die, and the other for Azazel. Azazel is just the scapegoat. I know it says in your, in, in your maybe you have um, some notes that say that this is maybe like a place or could be a demon, but likely it's just scapegoat. Um, <clears throat> when Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord. He'll use it as the sin offering. So just as the bull was Aaron's sin offering, the goat is the people of Israel's sin offering. And then the other goat, which the lot fell on Azazel, shall be presented alive. That, this goat will actually live. It will not die. Azazel, uh, shall, verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness Four or two or four Azazel. So here we have first the bull offering that's being offered. And this is the sin offering for the priests. 
is offered for the sins of Aaron's family. And this sacrifice removes all hindrances between the priest and God so that now the priest can perform the offerings on behalf of the people with the goats. The central concern that's being displayed for us in the offering of the bull, the central concern that's being showed is that now the priest has access. The priest now has access. Access to the place of the atonement. And this access Um, This access is to be able to achieve forgiveness and reconciliation that's only provided because of the slain animal. And the same is true now for Christ, um, for us in the cross. And that's more coming soon, but because Christ has access and has died, now we have access as the people. More on that coming, I promise. Um, So here we have um, the, the inventory of the animals in verses six through 10 regarding the bull. And then we also have the two goats this is the sin offering for the people. God decides which goat's going to be chosen for which role. Goat one is for the sin offering. It's for the purification of the people. Um, goat two, the remaining goat stays alive. Uh, we're going to get to that, what happens. And then that goat is released out into, uh, out into the wilderness. So when we get to verse 11, this verse 11 through 14 is the procedure Verses 11 through 14, that little section is the procedure necessary for how Aaron is supposed to kill the bull, the one that offers sin offering for himself. How is he supposed to kill the bull? What's supposed to happen? Here it is, verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take the censer full of coals of fire. This is this, is, um, this mentioning of censer, uh, of full of coals and fire is to be sure contrast the strange or unauthorized fi- fire from Leviticus 10 where his sons did not do it in the right way. This is how it's supposed to be done. So Aaron is doing it in the correct way. He's, he's offering the censer full of coals of fire from the altar of the Lord, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so he does not die. In other words, so he's entering into that first one and he's going into the second. When he goes into the second one where the ark is and right on top of the ark is the mercy seat, he's creating so much smoke and so much incense of smoke so that it's not necessary, not, I'm sorry, not, he's not able to even see the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat is where the presence of God is actually going to visibly come. And so one commentator said the reason why he's creating so much smoke from incense, this smoke is to prevent Aaron from actually being able to see the presence of God. Because if he actually saw the presence of God, he would die. So the smoke is literally for his protection. And I know if you've been with us, it's no accident that it's a pillar of smoke the thing that led them out of captivity. So here he creates so much smoke so that it's right in front of the mercy seat. He can't even see it because if he were to see it, then it would, it would kill him. So he can't literally see the mercy seat here because the presence of the Lord is going to descend in this area as he's, as he's offering this bull. And then look, and it says, verse 14, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his feather, with his finger, sorry, seven times. So um, this is just the beginning. He's already had to clean himself, bathe himself, put on the linen, kill a bull, um, and, and I guess kind of manhandle this bull, which um, he has no help. The, the, the point is the priest has to do all this by himself. I, I've never personally manhandled a bull and killed it, 
I imagine it's not a fun process and that it doesn't just give itself right over to it and then taking all the nasty blood from it and then just started trying to throw it everywhere intentionally on one place and on the east side seven times. But it's not an easy project. It's an overwhelming amount of work to only make atonement for such a short time. For only, and this is just for himself. We haven't even gotten to the other things that have to be done. Um, Spurgeon, as he's looking at this, he makes this, I, I, I thought, quite insightful um, comment. He says, Just as in the last days where Christ was in the gar- garden, right before he died, sweating blood, that that is actually indicative of what was going on with the priests. So in this particular times every day where they're manhandling big, bigger animals than them and killing them, it's, it's a lot of work. It's not like they just kind of, you know, go in there for a little light exercise. They're sweating profusely as they're doing this, but as they're killing so many animals, blood is all over them. The sweat blood that's in there is, when we see Christ sweating blood in the garden, it's indicative of what was actually going on here for these priests every time they had to do this. I thought that was quite insightful by Spurgeon. So here we go. That's what has to happen with just the bull. After that, in verse 15 through um, 19, we're going to see the procedure for the two goats. That's what's necessary for the bull for himself. Now for the people of Israel, this is what he has to do. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. This is not for the, you know, the light stomach people. This is for stomachs of steel. Uh, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood just as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. So we're talking about just sinful, sinful people needing to be atoned for. Again, this is all pointing us to now. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for the assembly of Israel. The priest and the priest alone must carry out all these duties completely by himself with no help whatsoever. Verse 18. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. So blood had to be shed and it has, a, has to be a lot of work and only be done by the priests so that they can receive some measure of atonement. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting at the altar, he shall present the live goat. So now we're getting to the goat for Azazel and the procedure in verses 20 through 22 of what's necessary for this goat that actually gets to go. This is also, I think, time-consuming work. He's going to take this goat. He's going to hold a live goat by the head for an undetermined amount of time and literally talk into the live goat's head, which I can't imagine... Is easy. Verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over this live goat all the iniquities of all the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. So he's literally, the idea is that the transferal of all the sins of Israel, as he confessed them, are going into this goat for Azazel, to Azazel. That is also something that would take a long time an overwhelming amount of work as well. And then 
it says, what's going to happen to this goat? Not going to be killed. And he shall put them in the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. So after he does this, then he can take it to that man and that man's going to take it out into the wilderness. The goat, here it is. What does the goat do? Bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. So here's what's going on with these two goats. Um, Spurgeon pointing at it quite insightfully says, goat number one is um, symbolic of who Christ is. Goat number one who dies, whose blood is shed, that's symbolic of Christ. Goat number two is not um, symbolic of Christ. Instead, goat number two, as it's sent out into the wilderness, this second goat demonstrates to us how our sins are carried away into the depth of the wilderness and never to be seen again. So as you've heard, when God forgives your sins, he forgives it as far as to the east and to the west. As all the sins are confessed, all the sins, all the iniquities, and all the transgressions are confessed into this goat, it's taking it to the, the goat handler, and the goat handler takes it out into the wilderness, and he's gone forever. And that's supposed to demonstrate to us um, what became of the sins is that they're gone. They're completely gone. And so the goat for Azazel demonstrates to us for what, when the first goat is killed, the second goat demonstrates what is the measure of our sin or how, how much forgiveness have we received? Is it gone forever? It's gone forever. This goat is sent out into the wilderness never to be seen again forever. So that's what's going on with these two goats. Um, and these two goats are to um, be taken or given as a sacrifice for the people of Israel. So now we've had, we've had Aaron kill the bull and offer it as a sacrifice for himself and his family and then the two goats, one dead, one alive, to offer as forgiveness for the people. And then you still have these two rams as the burnt offerings. And we're going to see what he does with these rams now, starting at verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. So all those linens, he's going to take them off. And verse 24, he shall bathe his body in water. So now this is the transition back from the sacred, back to the common. But he still has to offer these other sacrifices. And he shall bathe his body in water and put on his outer garments and come out um, and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and the people. So this is where he offers the rams now. So have you, have you started to take in the overwhelming amount of work required for this one priest on one day? It, it had to have lasted a long time. It had to have just been amazingly exhausting and nasty, nasty blooding, bloody, even with two bats, even with two bats. It's just an overwhelming amount of work necessary. And then it says in verse 25, um, he still has work. And then the fat of the sin offering, he shall burn on the altar. So now he's got to go back and get the bulls and the goats. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel, he also has to wash himself and his clothes and bathe his body just because any handling of this this goat who received all the sins that made him unclean. So he has to bathe himself so that he can come up into the camp. And then the bull and the goats that were initially killed and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place, they shall be carried outside the camp. And then there's more work. And this is nasty. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Don't want the job of having to carry the dung to the fire. But this is his job and his job alone to have to do all of this time-consuming, overwhelming, 
crazy amount of work to make atonement for just one year. Just one year. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute. So that's where we see that third, that third aspect is the ceremonial aspect is that the effects of the atonement now have been achieved. And what has been achieved now for the people is that they have forgiveness of sin. They have sanctification of the unsanctified things for now a year. The things that were all, as, as he said, transgressions of Israel because their uncleanliness and because of all their sins as they confessed all the iniquity. In case you're wanting to know how thorough. He uses all the synonyms of iniquities and transgressions and sins. And he says all that was put onto the goat and all that's been forgiven now. So the effects of the atonement is that now um, the whole forgiveness has been achieved for the people. So there's, there's two key points that are being shown to us right now. One, all the work that's been done right now is just screaming to you and I, this God must be a holy God for all this work necessary just to make atonement for a year, he must be holy. But the second key point that kind of screams out to you is this. Now, because of all this work, the community, for a temporary basis, the, the community of Israel also is now counted holy or forgiven. So that's what we see as the effects of the atonement. The holiness of God has been put on display and now the community has been forgiven of their sin for a temporary basis. We're gonna get to that in a second. As we finish this last section, 29 through 34 is the response to the Day of Atonement. From now on, in verse 29, there's an institutionalization or a starting of the Day of Atonement. He says in verse 29, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself. So he's basically saying from now on, this is the response of the day of, this is the response of the people for the Day of the Atonement. Every year we're going to start doing this. Every year the priest is going to have to come in and offer. When Aaron dies, his son will be the priest and his son will do this for the people. When his son dies, his son will be the priest and he'll do it. Every year this has got to happen. We're starting this Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Every day now, this is every year I should say, this is going to happen. That the priest is going to come do this. And so there's, there's two um, responses are two peoples that are affected by this institutionalization or starting of this ritual. You can see in verses 29 through 31 that how the people have to start doing it every year and verses 32 through 33 what's required of the priests now. So 29, and 30, 29 through 31, since this is starting, what's required of the people? Everyone's now to participate. And it says it. There shall be a statute or a law that everybody shall, as it says, afflict yourselves. Afflict yourselves um, can be understood or translated also, afflict your souls. And as you look in other places in the, in the Old Testament, as it says, you should afflict your souls, it's likely that this means that you should fast. Um, it could mean uh, literally kind of this self-reflection of feeling the weight of sin, but likely it means Afflicting yourselves means you shall fast. So the participation of the people is required every year. And every year when it's required, what should they do? They shall afflict themselves. They shall do no work, which means that they should rest or Sabbath now every time that this is happening on this day. Neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Nobody should do any work. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. So the participation of the people 
And it says, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So the people participate every year by afflicting themselves, by resting or Sabbathing. That's not a verb I know. And also um, by being cleansed, the passive recipients of being cleansed. That's their participation every year. The participation of the priest is also told us in 31 and following. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Verse 32, sorry. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place, so Aaron, his son, his son all the way down, this is what they're supposed to do, shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments, which we've already said they have to do the bath. He'll make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and also for the people of of the assembly. Bring in the animals every year, kill them, kill the rams, kill the goat, confess all the sins to Azazel, and let him be released by the handler. Every year this is going to have to happen. Um, And then it says in verse 34, This shall be a statute or a law now forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel. And here it is, once in the year because of their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So the response is, You have to now observe it every year. Expositor's commentary says, the purpose of this statute or law being given to them, as it says, forever, is because it is for the purpose of atonement. As long as the world continues, there will always be sin. We know that from Romans 3.23. Therefore, there is a need to deal with it every year in order for God's people to be able to approach a holy God. And so now, every year, Every single year, this has to happen. All right, I know that y'all are drowning right now. I threw you in deep, right? This crazy amount of work happening every, every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement. So now that we've looked at um, for Israel, the four aspects of this ceremony that was going on at the Day of the Atonement, this is what I want to do. I want to move into how these four things relate to Jesus. So The key theme I've said, which is access. The priest now has access by putting on the linen garments, washing himself, fulfilling what's what's necessary for the priest, and then killing the bull necessary now that he can make atonement for the people. And all that's um, demonstrating to us that the priest now has access. The shedding of blood was necessary in order for the priest to be able to go make um, offerings for the people so that they could be purified. Now, if we're going to relate that to Christ, the exact same thing is true. The shedding of Jesus' blood was necessary in order for Jesus to present himself as the purification for all Christians. So let's put up these four things again. And I want you to see how these four things relate to Christ and the gospel. So here they are. This is what was necessary for the Old Testament time. This is how it worked out for the people of Israel. Aaron was the priest. The sacrifice for the animals. The effects was they received atonement for the year. The response is every year we're going to have to participate by afflicting ourselves, by Sabbathing, receiving the cleansing, and the priests do the work. Now, as we look into the New Testament, these, these, these things are still happening, but it's different because of Jesus. The priest is Jesus. The sacrifice is Jesus. The effects are not a yearly forgiveness of sins, but now forever we are forgiven. And the response of the people is certainly similar, but different. So this is what I want to do. Um, In the New Testament, there's a book written, a letter written by someone who was amazingly... um, 
mindful and very deeply understanding of all the things that are going on in the Old Testament and how they all point to Christ. It's called, it's called the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, he writes for them what's going on in the tent there, what's going on and all this is happening and how it actually relates to Christ. So I want to read to you in the book of Hebrews this section. Now, you've probably read this section many, many times, but I'm praying that as you hear it, I want you to read this section through the lens of Leviticus 16. I want you to hear everything that's going to be said um, based on what you just heard in Leviticus chapter 16. And um, <laughs> I said that before it was deep. It's about to get super deep here. Like this is some, this is some things perhaps you weren't aware of, of how the tent really is a picture of something that's going on in heaven. Let's say it that way. So I'm in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to start at verse 6. And we're reading it through the lens of everything we just saw in Leviticus 16. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. This is the bath and the linens. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. So he can only go in by taking the blood of the bull and and the goats, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, and the intentional, obviously. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So you can't get into the first section, you can't get into the second section without going into the first. And he's going to relate that to the spiritual realm. I'm going to get to it. I know it sounds crazy hard to understand. It's really not. Here it goes. According to the arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper. In other words, every year when these sacrifices are being offered in the tent, they cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper because it still has to be done every year. But what we want is perfection of our conscience. What we want is forgiveness of sins forever. And he's saying that this ritual that's happening every year doesn't achieve that. Something greater has to happen. Well, this is what is going to happen. But they only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Here it is. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as the high priest, so this is where we're, he's pointing them to say, as we said, only the work can be done by the high priest. All of the work has to be done by the high priest. No one else can do it. It's the same for Christ. No one else could go to the cross. He had to bear it, bear it alone completely by himself. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Okay, this is where it's getting interesting. Let's look at verse 11b and understand when he says, the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation. What this means is every year, this tent that's here, this has always just been symbolic. Though it's, it's real, it's symbolic of a tent in heaven where the ultimate sacrifice has to be made. So this has to be done every year. And as this is done every year, it's helping us as humans, as we see this happen, understand that there's an actual tent in heaven where there is a holy of holies there and it's the real true holy holies. And this is yet but an image or as it says in verse 23, this earthly tent that Aaron was going into and all the priests is just a copy of the real one. 
there's a real one in heaven that's there that none of us has ever been to. And if um, sacrifice happens there, then there's no more longer, like here, all this can ever just give is perfection of the conscience of the worship temporarily. If someone goes into the real one that's in heaven and offers a sacrifice, then perfection of the conscience of the worshiper happens forever. So this has been happening every year. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not his creation, he entered, here it is, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. So he entered into the real tent up in heaven as a sacrifice, into the real holy of holies. Not that this isn't real. It's just a copy. It's not the original. Um, Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like that was happening here. It was just animals. But by his own blood, thus, here it is, securing eternal redemption. Not imperfect conscience uh, um, being seared at some, or for the conscience of of the worship being just imperfectly given for. Now it's securing eternal redemption. So when Christ died on the cross, he went as the priest because he has full access. He is completely clean and he went into the Holy Holies and he is not only the priest, but he's also the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, in the actual real tent and Holy of Holies in heaven. And when he offered his sacrifice, that's whenever we were um, given, as it says, security, eternal redemption, as it says in verse 13, for the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of bull and goats and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. If this every year, as it's just a copy, if they're killing animals and it would offer literally forgiveness of sins for a year time, okay, and this is just but a copy. How much more would a perfect sacrifice of the God-man in the real holy of holies, how much more then will it redeem us? If this does in the flesh happen for us yearly, that's what he says in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So now because Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies and given himself, we are now promised forever eternal inheritance. Skip over to 18. Let's keep reading. Therefore, not even... The first blood covenant was, therefore, not even the first blood covenant was inaugurated without blood. So in the copy, blood still happened. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels uh, used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So year after year, in the copy, it happened. And it was really, in some measure, achieving some kind of atonement on some temporary basis every year for them in the flesh. But it wasn't, it wasn't the forgiveness that's available. That's what it says. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things... Um, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Every year it was necessary. But 
the heavenly things themselves with better, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. That's not where he, even though there was a, even a ripping of the veil here, he still entered into the true, not copy, but true tent itself. That's what it says. But into heaven itself, Jesus now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it offered himself repeatedly as the high priest enters in the holy pieces, but every year for blood of his own. But it would have to, have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. And this copy had to be every year because it was just animals. But now that it is God himself as he enters, he does not have to go in there repeatedly. He appears once for all at the end of all ages to put away all sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's crazy awesome. Think about how, like, that's just so deep. My mind's just starting to explode. It's always been these copies, but it's always been about pointing them to the reality, which is in heaven, the real tent, the real holy of holies, which Jesus, the God-man, goes as the priest and the sacrifice, offers himself, appeases the wrath of God, doesn't just achieve some kind of temporal appeasement of perfection, but instead achieves for all of us who believe eternal perfection forever. That's crazy deep, right? Like we're in, I'm, I'm confused myself right now. I'm having to say it. All right, so here's what I want to do. I read a Spurgeon sermon this week on Leviticus 16. And I mean, I, ha- I can't commend enough that you read Spurgeon. I just can't commend enough that you read Spurgeon. So what I want to do is go by those four little things, those four aspects or the four ceremonial aspects and just hear- let you hear how Spurgeon makes some comments regarding each one of these things. First, the priest. The priest as a, or the person is the priest Jesus. All the labor is to be done by him. He did not need washing as the priest did because he had no filth to wash away. He was already spotless, Spurgeon writes. He was pure and spotless. He needed no incense to even wave before the mercy seat to hide the angry face of justice. He needed nothing to hide and shelter him because he was already pure and clean. Had he stood in front of the presence of God completely, which he did, he would not die because he's God himself. We have to have the smoke lest we die. Not Jesus. And he goes, oh, bow down and adore him. For if he had not been a holy high priest, he could have never taken his, your sins upon himself and have never made an intercession for you. Oh, reverence him or worship him that, that spotless as he was. He should come into this world and say, for this cause I sanctify myself that they might also be sanctified through the truth. Adore Jesus, love Jesus, the spotly high, spotless high priest who on the day of atonement took away all of your guilt. So the first thing is about this priest, and he is the spotless, pure priest who did all the work for himself. The next thing is about the sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the only one necessary. He was the sacrifice. And Spurgeon writes, Christians, you here have your Savior in this sacrifice. Not an animal, but your Savior. See his Father's vengeful sword sheathed into his heart. Behold, his death, agony. See the clammy sweat upon his brow. Mark his tongue cleaving to the root of his mouth. Hear his sighs and groans as he's upon the cross. Hark to his shriek, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It is finished. And you have now, you have more now to think than you ever could have thought. Only stood to see the death of a goat for your atonement. If you see the death of a goat, you're thinking some things. You see the death of Christ, you're blown away by the atonement of God through his son Christ. Mark the blood as from his wounded hand. It flows from his feet and finds its channels in the earth. 
from his open side, from one river, great river, see it gush as the blood of the goat made atonement typically. So Christian, thy Savior dying for you made the great atonement for your sins. And now you can go free. That's just part two. The third one, the effects. The effects for the people of Israel was a temporary atonement forgiveness of sins. Spurgeon. Oh, he appeals to those that don't know Christ. Oh, that thou would share in my master's atonement. In other words, believe right now and be a, a, be a beneficiary of this amazing sacrifice. Oh, that you could see him slaughtered on the cross. Then you would go, then mightest thou see him go lead leading captivity captive and taking thy sins where they might never be found. As the sins were spoken into that goat and thrown off into the wilderness, this is what happens. The effect for the atonement is for us. The sins are cast forever to the east and the west and we will never, ever be counted ever again. Those sins will never be counted against us. That's the eternal effect of the atonement. Not a yearly temporary thing because the perfect sacrifice has already been made in Not the copy, but in the true original, our response. Fourth one, our response. Now, Spurgeon looks at the affliction. And as he looks at the afflict yourselves, as I said, it, it means fasting. Spurgeon takes it a little bit more internally. And he says, I want, just like Israel, as they were told to afflict and rest, I want you to have deep affections for Jesus and rest. So he takes that afflict and makes it affections. And this is what Spurgeon says. First, the affection. It is well when we hear the name of Calvary and of Jesus, it is well to always shed a tear. For there is nothing that ought to make a sinner weep like the mention of the death of Jesus. There is nothing that ought to make a sinner weep like the death of Jesus. Drops of grief ought to flow, I streams of undisassembled sympathy with him to show our grief for what we did to pierce the savor. Weep over your Jesus. Weep for him that died. Weep for him who was murdered by our sins. So that's the first thing. Feel deeply in your affections. That's the first response. But then he says this. Further. And we always have to. If you just jump to the second one and don't do the first one, you don't feel the awesome sheer weight of the second one and the glory that it brings. We have to feel the affections, the deep sinful affections that we've done. And then he says further, when we consider the atonement after we feel the affections, we should rest. Rest from your works. Rest from your own righteousness. Rest from your toilsome duties. Rest in him. It is done. It is done. Rest. That's our responses. And so, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is an absolute continuation of everything that we've said. It's a celebration of the body of Jesus broken and the blood shed and the appeasement of God for his wrath in the original Holy of Holies for us. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, you with your sensory 
um, feelings, all five of them, are going to literally preach the gospel to yourself. It's not just auditory. It is auditory, but it's also tasting. It's touching. It's seeing. It's holding. It's smelling. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and celebrate what Christ has done for us and preach the gospel to ourselves. Here's how we do it at Remedy. Um, I'm going to come back up in the end and lead us through it. Jordan's going to sing a song, and I just invite you to think through Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 9 and all this amazing, overwhelming work that the priest had to do and in contrast that with the one act of Jesus, of his death on the cross and the eternal security it secured rather than the overwhelming amount of work for just a temporary yearly atonement. And just feel that. Let your affections be stirred and then rest. During this song, just think through all those things and then you can come to the forward or to the back get the the bread it's unleavened and then get the juice or the wine we have both make sure you look for the signs and pick the one you want and then come back to your your seat and then wait for me and i'll lead us through the time of the lord's supper but i just invite you to think and and let the goodness of what christ has done for us be dwelt on and enjoyed God, be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. And I pray that as we tangibly preach the gospel to ourselves to the Lord's Supper, that it would just be a sweet time of reflection of what you've done. The goodness of your cross and the absolute terror of your cross would all be seen things that we understand and glory in. in Jesus name the Lord's Supper is designed to be a place where we remember what Christ has done it's a place of remembrance primarily however I would say that there's some other things that go on in, in not salvific grace being conveyed. We're not being saved through taking the Lord's Supper. But as we remember and literally, as it says, preach the gospel to ourselves until he comes. And we, with all of our senses, proclaim the gospel to ourselves and the one, those in the room as we take the Lord's Supper. There is a grace that comes to us. It's not salvific but it certainly is a good grace that reminds us of all that God has done. And that is a good thing. On the night Jesus was to be betrayed and the night before his death, with a full understanding because he was the God-man of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the continual sacrifices that were being made, and he knew full well that he was going to go into the Holy of Holies before his father and appease the wrath of his father towards sin. He wanted to explain to his disciples what was going to be happening the next day. And so he, he did it through a simple supper. He took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it, symbolic of his body being broken the next day. And he took unleavened bread. In the Bible, leaven is spoken to, as, as to be comparative to sin. And when leaven is in bread, it's pervasive. It's 
It's all-encompassing. There is no place that you can't have leaven and bread once it's put in. And so he had unleavened bread, signifying that there is no pervasiveness of sin being declared over you anymore. Instead, you are now, as the book of Hebrews was saying, being perfected for all time. And so as he gave them the bread, he gave them unleavened bread so that they would remember, I am not guilty of pervasive sin anymore. I'm not just being declared innocent of my sins. I'm being forgiven for being a sinner, which is what I was born into. Without that, there is no forgiveness. There is no heaven. So he broke the bread and he said to them, this is my body which will be broken for you, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat and proclaim the gospel to yourself. And in the same way, he took the cup. Knowing, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he took the cup, knowing that his blood was going to be shed, his perfect blood, spotless lamb was going to be shed the next day. And he took the cup of wine and he gave it to them all and he said, take and drink. This is my, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Take and drink and remember the gospel. For as often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you preach the Lord's death to yourself and everyone there until he comes again. This only leads to us to our right responses, which is worship. A standing and lifting of hands of reverent awe. And in the same way where there was a copy of the tent and there was a per, an original Holy of Holies, our worship is, yes, but a copy. But we want to attain to the original as it will be in heaven as much as possible. So let your worship here be reflective of what our worship will be like there because of what he's done. So let's stand as Jordan leads us through worship and song and sing.